Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Daniel Malloy, the Director of Public Safety for the Colerain Township in Hamilton County, located just north of Cincinnati. An article in the USA Today on August 27th brought Dan to my attention. The article cited an overdose crisis in the Cincinnati area last week that left emergency responders drained as they dealt with 78 overdose cases over a two-day period. What stood out for me was buried in the article. It was a reference to a 35% drop in overdoses in your community over the same period last year. In this podcast, we'll discuss how you are making a difference, Dan, in the opioid epidemic through a unique teamwork approach. So welcome, Director Malloy. It's great to have you here with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Now, before we get into what happened in your area last week, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've witnessed as the heroin epidemic has begun to overwhelm communities in your area. No problem. Um, again, thank you for having me. This is a great opportunity to talk about, you know, the need to get involved and then some of the work that we've done that maybe can help provide a template or, you know, almost kind of a paint-by-numbers opportunity for other folks and other communities to say, you know, well, we can do something, and it's not rocket science. It's just a matter of um, getting involved and associating with good people and, and making something happen. My background, real quickly, is I spent almost 25 years at the police department here in Colerain. It's a 60,000 resident community, 46 square miles in size. We're the 14th largest community, whether it be city or township, in the state of Ohio. We, I served for the last six plus and as the chief of police, and as, since 2013 have served this community as the director of public safety in which I get the honor to serve with both police and fire. So we have decided that in a problem-solving mode, the heroin problem is something that needed to be addressed and we needed to think about some, doing something differently other than arresting people and just dealing with uh, the multitude of victims, whether it be the people living in the overdose or the addicted lifestyle or dealing with the overdoses or family members or community members that are subject to the fallout that goes along with that. So really it's been a learning process since 2014 uh, when I started really getting my feet wet in both the world of 
fire and EMS as well as looking at the heroin issue from a problem-solving perspective, which is an operating philosophy that we have within the police department, meaning that, by definition, two or more incidents that occur in which there's an expectation from a community that the police department will do something about it. Well, I think it's pretty simple to understand that there's definitely been more than two instances of heroin, whether it be arrest, trafficking, possession, or overdose-related issues, that there's a problem. So we realized that we needed to change our perspective on it, think differently, bring different people into the mix, and problem solve, and really work hard to identify a solution rather than being overwhelmed by the problem. So let's kind of set the backdrop for this. In the community that you're in, you're surrounded by an area that is just exploding with overdoses. Last week alone, in a 48-hour period, you had over 78 overdoses in greater Cincinnati. Meanwhile, with the program that you've set up, year over year, you've got 35% less overdoses for all of the cases that you've tracked. Now, right. so it's in a community that's going one way and yours is going the other. So can you take us through that program and how you set up your quick response program? Sure, no problem. It's, it's kind of a um, one step in front of you, know, kind of walk before you can run, crawl before you can walk, all that kind of piece. Um, we knew there's definitely a problem, but we needed to learn as much as we could about it. And what we learned initially was that a lot of folks that are wanting help don't have any idea where to find help. And even from a family perspective, um, they didn't know where to turn or they don't have the resources to turn to and find help. So we, as we were meeting people in this world, we realized that that was a shortfall and that we would probably be dealing with a lot of folks who are asking the same questions. So we partnered up with a group called the Community Recovery Project dot org and who had created a resource document actually we call that our recovery resource packet and that packet provides a lot of um, phone numbers contacts definitions understanding so people know what who the who to call who can they call what you know um, inpatient outpatient service capabilities there are and they can actually get something at the time of the incident and know that they can make a phone call and not be helpless or wondering, where do I turn? That was very well received, and we started doing that August 1st of 2014. And every overdose incident that we responded to, we provided that. Now, we didn't order any of our police or fire to, to give that out. We wanted to, again, work within the organization and change a culture that was kind of cynical towards all the negative that's associated with the crime the family troubles associated with it, the neighborhood troubles, and all the things that go on from the police side, as well as the repeat run volume that's associated with, you know, responding to the same family or the same person three times within a week for this, for an overdose. We needed to change the ideology or the perspective of our first responders to say, you know what, we have a job, we're committed to, to saving lives, making a positive impact, and do the right things, we don't get to pick and choose what those situations are. We just have to be the most professional in our service and commit ourselves to doing the right thing every time to no matter who dials 911 or who asks us to provide that level of service. So, so can I jump in? Initially, sure, go right ahead. So 
that had to be a difficult thing because that's human nature. Look, you're a first responder and you've responded to this same situation, this life or death situation three times, four times, the same people involved. That's frustrating. So how did you make break through that barrier to kind of educate them so that those first responders understood, oh, wait a second, we're dealing with a brain disease here. Oh, gosh, regular rules probably don't apply. A lot of it was talking and allowing ourselves to learn our, for me personally, as the police chief, I really didn't have a whole lot of empathy for the folks that were committing the crimes, you know, breaking into the houses, stealing the copper, causing a lot of issues to our community and basically hurting everything. But when you step back and you look at the problem and you look at, like you said, it is a brain chemistry issue. It is a disease. There are people when 70% of the folks in this lifestyle were originally, um, prescribed medications, you know, when you meet the person that was a high school all-state athlete and a good student and had wisdom teeth pulled and because of the addiction characteristics, they got prescribed the medication, they became addicted. They're not bad people. They're just in a lifestyle that it's scary. It really shows you that it can happen to anybody and it's not, you know, a real, sometimes it's not a conscious decision that, hey, I want to be a drug user, I want to be a, uh, a heroin user, it is a tragic situation that a lot of them don't have a heck of a lot of control over and then it kind of takes control of them. And it was slowly educating and learning, and, and but it was finding good people within our organizations that were open-minded enough to learn and then could speak on this and work through our manpower and our staffing and just let people know that, hey, we're not, we're not changing the way we respond, we're not changing the game, we're just we're a professional organization. This is what we believe in. Let's fall back to our roots and our base, and let's just get this and do the right thing. And slowly, that's happened. But really, it was evident because in the early months of our, of our resource recovery packet, we had a 60 to 70% distribution rate, meaning we, on six out of 10 cases or overdoses, we were distributing it. And we slowly saw that number increase to a point that almost a year later, in the middle of 15, about the same time we started the quick response team, in July, our numbers were at excess of 100%, which leads you to question yourself and say, how do, they, how do you distribute more overdose recovery packets when than you have overdoses? Well, the guys and gals told us that we listened to what the families are telling us and what the people we're dealing with are telling us, and that even if they're is a history of drug use or it's in the family and it, we're leaving them resources to let them know that we are here to help and there is help that can be made available to them. So we started seeing 110%, 117% of the distribution. And we kind of looked at us as leaders and said, you know what, I think we're changing the culture. And it didn't hurt us at all that in the interim, some of those resource packet distributions were actually being acted upon and people were coming back to our fire stations and our police departments and saying, can we hug you because you saved my life? Can we take a picture with you because you saved my life? Those things certainly don't hurt the building and the changing of the ideas because ultimately all our police and our fire, they got in the job to make that positive impact. They got in the service business to make a difference, and they truly are. It's just you get a little hard and you get a little cynical and you needed to kind of come back to base and regroup and, you know, realize that this is what we do, this is why we do it, 
it is disturbing and it's really sad, but you know what? We can make a difference. We can change a family's life. We can change an individual's life. So it didn't hurt that in the interim while we're trying to sell a culture change, we didn't get some success and then get some hugs at the same time. So it definitely was a worthwhile project. Yeah, that's a nice win, a really nice win. So let's oh, talk yeah, let's absolutely. Ta- yeah, let's talk about your teams then. So and let's get down into the teams before we get into how you went about assembling this and putting the program together methodically. So the teams consist of team consists of a full time police officer, a paramedic who we train at a level of a tactical medic, which is a little bit higher asking them to do a little bit more. We equip them just a little bit differently when we train them differently, and I'll certainly bring that up. And then the third partner, and probably the most important partner, is our partner from the Cincinnati Addiction Services Council who provide that on-site triage and assessment to anyone that has overdosed that we're conducting the follow-up for. And they are fantastic. I mean, they just, they're great at what they do. They're very passionate. And you need that right kind of relationship, but they have become just an unbelievably important part of our team as we make this response. And um, as far as the the police officer, the training and the the capabilities of the police officer really aren't any different other than being open-minded and realize that we are doing the right thing for the community. We still arrest people. We still take people to jail for trafficking and drugs and think there's a time and a place when... The crime needs to be addressed, but for the most part, we are trying to problem-solve through and get them the help that they need so we can end the problem and resolve the problem rather than just arrest them, take them to jail so they can come back out and then reuse and then probably overdose because we know the differences in the in their in their uh, ability to handle a certain level before they go in, to the, and then they come out 30 days later and they try to use the same level of heroin that they used before, and then it, it in the NX Center and they're in an overdose situation. So we've kind of learned that, and we're working within that area to just to get them the help that they need so we can provide that long-term uh, solution to that heroin problem. But yeah. it's a trained paramedic. Because and the question often comes, why do you need a paramedic? And the paramedic is the team response is really kind of simple. It's it There's definitely a function because... There was a crime committed at the time of the overdose. There was a possession charge, the drug abuse instrument possession. You know, there's a there's a the possession of the, the the controlled substance. All those kinds of things certainly can be criminal in nature, and there are communities across the state of Ohio that do prosecute for that. But that gets us to the door, and I, as a police officer, I get to bring my friends, who are the paramedic and the social service person, and knock on the door and say, hey, we were here the other day. We were here for the overdose for, you know, Dan Malloy. We're, we'd like to, is Dan here? So let's back up yeah, just Dan. a second, Dan. Let's yeah, back up for just a second. So pretty much you track all of the overdoses, and within about three days later, after an overdose has taken place in your community, this team goes out and knocks on the door. That's correct. We try to get out. We've proven that if we get to face-to-face with you within three to five days, 80% of the, those people are, are making it to treatment. When we first started, we didn't. We tried to do a look back. We tried to go back 30, 60 days. There wasn't a whole lot of cooperation or interest in because they've, they're long past that overdose. They're long past that death experience. The three to five day window is the, is the window that we found to be the most successful. And we were just talking today 
is uh, with the addiction services um, CEO, Nan Franks, and she was telling me, Dan, we're at 80% success when we have a face-to-face three to five days. So and that is huge. Yeah. That's a huge piece to this. Oh, yeah, I, I, this is tremendous. So let's talk about that face-to-face and, and what it entails because, again, You've got that that concern, that threat from the one that that's overdosed, or the you know the people in that home. Um, so you've got that threat of incarceration. So how do you kind of overcome that when you knock on the door and geez, how's the dialogue go? What happens? Well, it's it's really funny. Um, the first um, officer that was assigned, the police officer was assigned to this, was a drug investigator for me when I was the chief of police, and he always likes to tell people that he was voluntold to do this job and he did it because he believed in us and he believed in you know the greater vision but he didn't figure out how the heck is this going to work I mean I've arrested a lot of these people most likely and there's no way in heck number one they're going to open the door number two they're going to want anything to do with me and what the team found out very early on is doors did open no one was running out the back door and they like to tell the story that Probably nine out of ten cases, within five minutes, there's some crying and hugging going on because they can't believe, number one, that people that they looked up to, again, think back to when you're a child or, you know, as a parent, you're reading books to your kids and who are the people that are presented to us as people that we can trust within our community, people that want to do right by us and people that want to make a positive impact is a police officer and a firefighter. And then all of a sudden there's a police officer and a firefighter at your door and saying, we're here to help you. And they're in a position where self-confidence is not at its highest. Self-esteem is certainly not where it was prior to the the initiation or their addictive lifestyle. So they're looking at us and they're thinking, why do you want to help me, but you really want to help me? And here I brought my friend Nan or Shana from the Addiction Services Council, and they're here to work with you to get you to treatment and get you help. And we're going to do it right now because we're right here. And you don't have to go anywhere. You don't need anything because we're going we're gonna to do it for you. And the response has been unbelievable. Wow. And like I said, they're not running away. They're not lying to us. Now, some people take a few trips to go by, but we commit to, you know what, let's go by and check on Dan Malloy again. He, he, got our, he took our business card, but he wasn't ready. Our team stays in connection with them. They want to open up those lines of communication. We've had folks that didn't want us to, to do anything for them the first day, but they found us at our, at our satellite office when we're working in the QRT model um, because we have a couple of team members come up from the Addiction Services Council that help us do some of the paperwork associated with getting people signed up for Medicare, getting the, the full assessment done, so we can move on to, to talk to the next folks that we need to find. So our team can go out and get that. We can get them to uh, our partners there at the, our, our community resource center and keep that team rolling forward. So there's a lot of little pieces that really help us demonstrate. But we've had people show up there. We've had a, a other gentleman that flagged down one of our officers who wasn't on the QRT that day, but he was working, and the two started talking. Next thing you know, we're on the horn with our partners at the Cincinnati Addiction Services Council, and we're getting them picked up, and we're getting them to treatment. These are the kind of things that are unexpected, but they're unbelievably appreciative and and really satisfying when it comes to making a difference in your community, and people do want help. I mean, we've, we've had people bring their friends to 
come to when they knew we were coming. So there's two people rather than just one to be to go through the triage and go through the assessment and get things done. We're just talking about a gentleman today. He's in. Um, we provide a sober living class on Wednesday nights after a QRT. We provide family counseling and we're and we're initiating a youth piece as well. One of the gentlemen that's now in the follow-up counseling was four months ago was an absolute disaster. And they said, you need to come by, they were asking me, to see him because you wouldn't believe it's the same person. See, these are the things that you just kind of sit back and go, wow, this is why we got in the business, right? This is why we <clears throat> chose to do the jobs we do. Again, we don't get to pick the course or the lane we travel in. We just get to know what we believe in and make a difference. So this is really exciting not only for us as first responders, but for the folks that are in the social work uh, platform and they're seeing a result of their work. So it's it's pretty daggone immense. Outstanding. So one of the challenges that we have here is once you get somebody to the point where they, they say, hey, I want I want in. Give me, I, I need to get into treatment. We have no beds. How do you right. deal with that? How do you deal with that? I mean, you're going out, you're knocking on the door, so you're aggressively pursuing them and you get 80% of them that say, yeah, I want help. But then, do you have that gap that we would have? We would have like a, a, geez, could be a two-week gap. We have that gap. We're not lying to you. And that's, that's you know, I saw this as a bridge between the overdose and that treatment to build that connection and build that relationship and build that capability there for someone or a family to have someone to reach out to while they're waiting for that day to come. How do you we feel? Get, yeah. We get the people to call and say, "Are you really picking me up tomorrow? Am I really getting? Am I really going to treatment?" And they're ready. I mean, they're waiting. They're they're ready to go when the folks come up to get them to take them to their treatment. And what's we, surprising is so many people want to get help. Yeah. Nobody wants to live in this lifestyle. It is there's so much more people that want help than anyone wants to give them credit for. So that is definitely that's the conversation we had today at a press conference and an opportunity to sit down with Senator Portman. Um, was in one of the fire stations that was impacted immensely by the overdoses last week in the city of Cincinnati. We sat down and, and they talked about it, and this treatment piece continues to come up because the availability of quality treatment for the people that want it is just not there, and yeah. steps need to be taken to make sure that's available. We have a partner here that, again, I, I, I tell people you'd be surprised who may reach out to you when they see that you're actually doing something, because I've had a I've had a call from an inpatient facility that said we're we we can keep beds we can keep a couple beds available for Colrain's QRT, you know just let us know we'd be happy to do it. Well, wow, um, thank you. Um, we have another service provider, uh, addiction physician, that has moved his facility and opened up his facility as of August fifteenth into Colrain because he wanted to work within a community that was doing something. Now he's committed to us that he will provide next day availability to his office for anyone that overdoses in our community. So those things that, wow, didn't expect that, didn't um, didn't really know how to ask for something like that, but that's, I, I just believe that there's so many good people that want to make this kind of impact. When you start working in this field, you're going to connect with them, and you never know what resource makeup so I, it's an outpatient facility but we can get this doctor is very very smart has a lot of talent working with him 
they can do something to start this process and make sure that we're not just doing the same thing over and over again, and that's just allowing the person to exist until we can get them something in somewhere. So we can at least look in the mirror and know that we're doing everything possible within our abilities and our resources to change these people's lives. So it sounds like, if I can read between the lines there, basically you've everybody's got this gap where they're waiting for a bed. So you knock on the door, somebody says, yes, I want, I want treatment, I want, to, I want to go in. And sometimes you have a gap, but in your case, you have some resources that are coming out of the woodwork in the community that are helping with that. And so maybe your wait yeah. times are not quite as much as what they would have been. And I have a feeling yeah. you're probably getting pretty innovative in terms of how you help that person that wants the help through that waiting period in other ways, too. Can you name some we of those? Are, well, we are, and that's where the, the uh, professionals and the experts from within the social service community, the social workers and the addiction service specialists, their life is built to work in this arena, and they encourage those conversations, and they want to work through and provide that assistance for the families. They're the ones getting those phone calls. Now, the idea of the team is in the event, let's just say I'm the, I'm the person and I'm struggling and I'm on the phone with, you know, Nan Franks or, or Shauna who provides the QRT service here in Coleraine. And if they need that uh, help and she can reach out to our quick response team members and say, you know what, I'm, I've been on the phone with Dan. He's struggling. He needs some help. Can, can you check on him? Well, we now have an availability. We will. We'll go check on him. You know, we've committed to that kind of level of follow-up because in reality, we've now, we've been doing this a year, and we've probably done over 170 follow-up investigations. We've still lost three people in the period between our initial follow-up and getting them into that treatment facility. We've lost three people, and that really saddens us, and it makes us really angry. Um, and it's like, what else can we do? We need to be able to provide more and do more for the families and those folks that are struggling because every one of those people wanted help. And it just, the disease was eating them alive and it got them and it cost them their lives. And that's just something that just doesn't sit well with us. So providing that bridge, filling that gap in any way we possibly can is what we're trying to do. And the teamwork approach helps you to do that and be sometimes innovative, I take it, in terms of how you fill that gap. Yes, sir. Great. So now you alluded to this a little bit earlier. How can we make this kind of, for lack of a better expression here, paint by numbers for other communities that want to adopt a similar model to what you've done here, Dan? Well, we've, we've talked to a lot of communities. I've talked, you know, Highland County, Ross County, um, Miami County, Troy, Ohio, in the state of Indiana, um, the Indiana Institute of Justice. We're meeting with the Northern Kentucky Office of Drug Control Policy on Friday. We will help and do anything. That's one of the great things about police and fire across this nation is we don't mind sharing, and we will give you everything we have to help you if you choose to, to do this. So I spoke uh, with uh, Chief Mueller, our EMS coordinator from Coleraine, Township Department of Fire and EMS. The other day, we were in San Antonio at a national fire conference, and we had a chance to speak with chiefs from throughout the country and, and leaders, and they everybody agrees that there's something that needs to be done, and they want to be a part of doing something. Well, 
we have the template. We'd be happy that the logic models, uh, you know, the outcome models, the resource recovery packets, you can see what they're, you could do that tomorrow if you had if information that in your community for resources, you could put your header on it and start giving them out tomorrow. That's one thing I tell everybody. You can do this tomorrow for .08 cents a page, depending on what your copy contract is, for black and white copies, and you can start giving out resources that will make a difference. Why? Because we know it, because they came back and said, this document provided me the resources, and it saved my daughter's life, it saved my life, it can make a difference from the get-go. And you can slowly build up your, you know, your partnerships within your community to eventually initiate a response team, and it can be one day a week, because that's all we are right now in Coleraine. It's every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. or later, depending on the volume of, of follow-ups. We partner that police officer, that uh, paramedic, and the, and the Addiction Services Council expert, and we go out and we make contacts and we meet people and we conduct a follow-up. So it doesn't have to be a full-time thing. It can be a part-time thing. It can be a one-day-a-week thing. It can be a two-days-a-week thing. That, to me, that would be optimal. You could hit like a Tuesday and a Friday, so you always remain within that three- to five-day window of response because that has also been proven. Um, it just takes leaders to want to do something and then make it work for their community. You may not have – I've got one community that we talk to. They don't have police support. They're going to do it with a medic and a, and a social service provider. It's not optimum, but they need, they know in their heart they want to do something because they believe it works, and hopefully they'll prove through small wins that the police department will want to join in and be a part of it. I just tell do what you do, be safe in what you do, and make something like that happen. You'll be surprised. And it doesn't have to just be police and, and, and fire response. If you have a hospital in your community, Work with your hospital, a hospital here at Fort Hamilton, Hughes in Hamilton, Ohio. It's a suburb just north of us. Their hospital has been instrumental in creating what they call the Golden Ticket Program, where if someone comes into the ER, they evaluate, and they throw them in the Golden Ticket Program, and they can get counseling service, physician oversight, and all the things that are helpful in the road to recovery through that relationship in the hospital. That is, to me, that's just... And that's huge. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to be helpful in this. It's just a matter of leadership saying that we, we need to do something and I'm willing to fail. I'm willing to fail if it doesn't work and I'm willing to listen to the things that make it better and I'll come back to this play and I'll do it differently next time because that's, that's really where we're at. This was a, we was an idea. It was a concept and we just tried it and we knew it would be different in 16 than it was in 15. And it is. It's working differently. It's the, the response differently, but it's little things sometimes. When we go to a house and there's no one there, we write handwritten notes. Like, Dan, we were here for you. We want to help. Um, Nan from Addiction Services Council, calling police and fire. And it's a handwritten note, a little note, just to let them know that it's not just a business card. There is actually a, there's a, we're trying to connect. That's a great touch. It's amazing. It's amazing the way that that's been received, hmm. taking a handwritten note. And that, that's Nan Franks from the, the CEO. She's a 30-year veteran of doing this kind of, of work with people in this lifestyle, and she's truly passionate and cares and wants to make that difference. That was her idea. You know, we're a little more 
official and stuff, police and fire. But she's that person. She just did it. She said, I, I want to leave a handwritten note. And you know what? That makes a difference. It's people want connection and they believe that they want to believe that you care. And that's sometimes it's the littlest stuff that just doesn't make you wouldn't even think about it. And uh, it's really cool to see it evolve and see successes. Great. So if a community wants to do this, after, you know, having gone through this whole experience, you've probably got a pretty good handle on the kind of additional funds that they might need for it. Or are there any? What Can you speak to the money end of it? Well, yes. It costs us $34,000 a year to run 52 weeks, eight hours a week with a police officer and a paramedic. It costs 30, and to pay for the gasoline and the oil changes and all that. It's $34,000 a year. So on the other side of that, if you could speculate for a second, what do you suppose the community saves as a result of that in not having to go round and round and arrest, in essence, the same person multiple times, the additional crime that's caused, et cetera, et cetera? That's a, that's a great question because the reality is the crime in itself, if I take Dan Malloy off and put him in recovery and Dan Malloy's been breaking the houses, sheds, all that kind of things that go along with it, stealing copper from AC units, stealing out of vacant houses, the cost, who knows that cost, you know, for all the replacement and all that insurance costs that go along with that. But the reality is if I arrest Dan Malloy for possession, I'm going to end up going to court because it's a felony case. I have to go to grand jury to testify. It costs me to pay that police officer three hours of overtime to go to court on his off day and then go to trial. That's three hours of time that goes along with that court case until that's resolved. You have the EMS response. We have to pay for the Narcan. You start giving two or three doses, that's you know $36 to $40 a dose. Wow, that's expensive. Plus, down here in Hamilton County, we are part of a regional communication dispatching consortium. We pay, in our departments, roughly $800,000 a year to go do our job. So you call into this center, and the center dispatches us. It costs me you know, roughly $800,000 plus to dispatch police and fire in a year to go do their jobs. Well, it's roughly $20 plus a call. Well, every overdose is a dispatch, and it costs a policeman and a fireman to go. So it costs us $42 right off the top just to go to that call. Not alone the officer time, the paramedics time, everything else. It costs roughly $136 every time that engine, that medic engine that's responding. How many calls? Out. Yeah, so, so how many calls you, in a year? Let's so do this, some quick math here. Oh, well, I'll, give you, I'll just give you a community. A, a community that's of like size of us, 48,000 folks, the city of Middletown. It's a little northeast to us, up near Dayton. In 2014, they did the calculation. Police, fire, the courts, the public health, and the social service system within the city of Middletown, they spent $1.4 million just to deal with the heroin epidemic. Wow. $1.4 million. And so just so the, in, money's, the money's real. It yeah. definitely is. So in rough numbers then, with a program like yours, as a percent, what would be the reduction, would you think? 35%? Well, well, you would think, well, the other the other piece in this is, and I've learned this as well as I've educated myself more into this issue, because we, the reality is 
you know, in, in police and fire, the research tells me, and this isn't my research, but it's from the people that are smarter than me, the doctors and whatnot in, the, in that infectious disease arena, 30-plus percent of our first responders are going to be exposed to needle sticks during their career. Oh. Which means that they enhance their potential of getting exposed to hepatitis C and yeah. HIV. Yeah. Which which is already proven that that you know it's a half a million dollar lifetime care. And then you combine if there's two, then you're talking about a million. So this is real money and and you're talking about people's lives. And I look at people, I've got two hundred and forty police and firefighters. Thirty percent. That's roughly 80, 80 folks. What 80 people do you want to just say, we don't care about you? So if I'm not going to as many overdoses, if I'm reducing my overdose runs by 35%, that means 35% time I'm reducing the potential exposure through needle sticks and spittle and everything else and blood to my first responders, which means their lives are better, their home lives are safer, their ability to have children is still there. All the things that make... And they deserve to receive when it comes to serving the community. They don't need to be worried about that. Those are real things to me. And those should be real things to every community. We don't want this. We don't want Scott County, Indiana, where uh, we are a town of 4,000 people and we have over 100 cases of HIV. Nobody deserves that. So we need to, we're just thinking differently. I mean, we had five exposures last year to needle sticks or spittle last, during last year out of 100 and 67 overdoses, you know, those are things that came upon our officers and our firefighters in 2015. That's just five too many. So there's just uh, there's so much that goes along with doing the right thing and taking care of your communities, but also taking care of our first responders. So there's a lot in this invested in this game. So you certainly make a very, very strong and overwhelming, I might say, case for economically, that is, for your program as well. Um, just in, in, incredible. So, Dan, what other advice would you have for other communities that uh, that would like to start a, a program such as yours? Just don't be afraid to do it. Um, there's always someone that's going to tell you that it's not worth it. There's always someone that's going to come out of the out of the woodwork and tell you that you should just let them die. Um, but I really don't believe that's who we are as people. It's certainly, it's just not the right thing to do. Do it. Whatever you do is going to make a difference. It has to. It. We can't just sit back and allow someone else to resolve this problem or solve this problem for us. And I think that's that's. It just seems so overwhelming. And what we did to change that was the heroin problem. It's just killing everybody. It's destroying communities. Don't disagree. But we started looking at it. Each at a case-by-case, individual-by-individual basis. So, yeah, it's it's a huge problem. But you know what? If Dan Malloy is the overdose victim, we're going to deal with Dan Malloy, and we're going to work through and work take, take care of his family and him, get him into treatment, get him towards recovery, provide one year of follow-up with him, provide family counseling, sober living, whatever we need to do to make this family whole. And every family and every person we can positively impact, that's a success. You know, <laughs> that's how we don't get overwhelmed with the volume. That's a, I think that's a, that's 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 a big part because it it can be like where do we even start with this? It's like who do we even? Wow, it's just everywhere. It's in every neighborhood. It's in every 
everywhere. It's who who do you pick from, and you got to start somewhere. And that's kind of how we've evolved through all that. It's just you know we take every person as their as its own problem, and we work through that individual and that individual's family and those those people that love him or her. So yeah, and I think that that's something that we really haven't spent too much time on, but. I'd, I'd like to just uh, ask one more uh, a follow-up question on that. The family and how you bring the family into it and have them as part of the process. You know, so often I think with an addict, we focus on just the addict and not the family. And the family is part of both the problem and the solution, aren't they? They certainly are because the reality is that family's trying to figure out what to do. Um, and this is just from conversations. There, there's embarrassment there's this stigma in the public to you, you know, you know, my son is a heroin addict who raises their hand to say that, where do they feel comfortable? Where can they feel like they can reach out and say, can, do you know any place I can get help from? It's really a closed in network that it's a shame. You know, you're, you're just, we want to make sure that our community knows that, you know, there's a place that you can care. We don't, in fact, we have satellite stations throughout you know, our, our community, and we make sure that one of those stations is where we have the, the family counseling, and it's it's available that no one would think, why is this person here? We're not down in the hospital region of Cincinnati, so, wow, why was Dan Malloy down in Clifton? You know, what's going on? Who's who's sick, or what's what's the matter? Well, you can be, you know, on in a business on Corian Avenue in our community, and no one would think anything... I wouldn't even think anything. Why did I see Dan Malloy there? Because everybody's in there. So there's no stigma attached with showing up and being part of, you know, an assistance platform. We're trying to make it as easy as we possibly can within their own community to provide them the resources that they can to better understand the disease, know what the loved one is going through as a person living within the disease, and how can they work to better understand and better help themselves and the person living within that lifestyle is just um, trying to break down some of those things that have already been built into making this life very, very difficult. And I think it's, it's the family is as important as anyone else because they're, they're struggling too and they're suffering uh, very much so, you know, because it's usually not typical and they're just trying to figure out how the heck do we how do we get up tomorrow? You know, how do we make sure my loved one gets up tomorrow? Um, I've talked to parents that follow their children around all hours of the night, come home, get a couple hours sleep, go back to work, and then then they go back out and make sure that that's not the night that their their son or daughter dies. I mean, it's just a sad, sad stories when you sit down and listen to them, but they're so real. And it's it, as a parent, I can't even fathom doing anything else than what I hear them saying what they're doing to try and keep their children alive. It's just, it's just, a, it's a disease and it's a d- terrible epidemic. Well, Dan, I, uh, I really want to thank you for your time today. It, this has really been outstanding. I think you've spelled out for our listeners uh, pretty clearly how to get started with a similar program in their communities. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to publish all of the materials that you've provided for us along uh, on our website, cover2.org. So for those listeners that want to begin something uh, in their own communities, you'll have all the documents right there to see what Dan and his team have done in their community. 
So, Dan, any final uh, comments for our listeners? No, I would just offer up that uh, my email address is d-m-e-l-o-y at colrain, C-O-L-E-R-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And if, if we could be of assistance or we can send policy and procedure out to police departments or if we can help in any way, we certainly would be willing to because that's just, again, that's how we were raised as police and fire uh, service providers. And if we can do anything to help any community or help them understand or they have any specific questions. Again, we just jumped in with both feet knowing we needed to do something. We're also excited about as more communities start doing these kinds of things, we know that there are people that are smarter than us and 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 will make this better and exponentially. And we just want to re- ask people that would you just, you know, throw us, your good things our way, so maybe we can make our system better. Because um, we we know that it's going to happen, and we just want to make sure we continue to make sure ours is providing the level that you're going to provide in the communities that you are touching. So we just don't be hesitant to reach out and, and um, ask questions or pass along great success. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dan. And I sh- I'm sure our listeners really appreciate your uh, comments today. We've been visiting with Dan Malloy, Assistant Township Administrator and Director of Public Safety in Colerain Township in Ohio. He's also served as the Chief of Police in Colerain for more than six years. So he had a great deal and a breadth of experience over the years to found the Quick Response Team that's making a difference in their community. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. We'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you know someone who is struggling with addiction, please share our podcast with them. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.